Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley Kinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Great to be with you, Ashley. Good to be with you. And enjoying this fall warm spell that we're having. Yeah, no, I'm like a little... <laughs> it's crept into our studio. <laughs> well, the thing, I, I I had this magical moment walking to work today where yeah. it was like warm enough where I, you know, I wasn't dreading the coming of winter, mm-hmm. but the leaves are really coming down now, yeah. and I was just getting rained on by by leaves, and uh, I was like, yeah, ah, the yes. Best. The golden, the golden era of mm-hmm. the season. So uh, we've got a pretty appropriately fall uh, drink this week, but I, I, I want you to first introduce our, our guest. Yeah, we are very excited to talk to Bishop Frank Caggiano this week. He is the Bishop of Bridgeport, Connecticut, and he is somewhat of an expert on one, relating to young Catholics, and two, synodality. That's right. So as you've probably heard if you listen to this show, the Vatican is organizing a "Quote unquote synod on synods." So, or you know, rethinking how we we operate as a church and how we 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 get feedback from from all of God's people. And Bishop Kajano's already done some of that in his own diocese, even before this whole brand new initiative was started. And so, we get his take on you know why he thinks Pope Francis is you know calling the church to do this right now, and and some some lessons that he's learned from reaching out and having some really difficult conversations with people in his diocese. Yeah, so I think it's a real service to the whole church. I hope, you know, I don't know how many bishops listen to this show, but take a cue from Bishop Caggiano and take this process seriously. And uh, something else we took seriously was uh, Bishop Frank's drink recommendation. Oh, yeah. Uh, so he said his fa- his favorite drink is a is a Southern Comfort Manhattan. So despite being born in Brooklyn, yeah. he loves a good Manhattan with a, from the Southern, with a little Southern borough influence. So uh, we're drinking Manhattans, but with Southern comfort instead of yeah. rye or bourbon. So, so cheers. Cheers. So stick around for that conversation. But first we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What do we have this week? So we've got an interview with a, with a bishop and we there was a lot of bishop news this week in the church. So yeah. we are devoting this this episode of this Jesuitical. Is the bishop's episode. This is the bishop's episode. <laughs> so we're going to run through a, a, a few stories. But first we wanted to start with a speech that was given by the president of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, which is notable because uh, this is the other reason we're talking about bishops this week is because they're meeting next week. Right. Uh, they're at their uh, twice annual uh, meeting. I always get confused by that word, biannual, but they meet twice every year. So this is the fall meeting uh, in Baltimore where they're going to be doing a lot of things that that whole vote on a Eucharistic document that's going to happen. Right. Um, so we wanted to highlight some some news from bishops this week. 
Yes. So on November 4th, Archbishop Jose Gomez, as you said, the president of the U.S. Bishop, Bishops Conference, gave a talk to a group, an international conference in Madrid, in which he addressed how the church should relate to um, new secular movements uh, for social justice. He uses a couple terms. These are, you know, wokeness, intersectionality. Some people call it the successor ideology. And he had uh, some pretty harsh words to say about it. Yeah, I... The thing that I I guess he was very interested in contrasting it with Christianity, right? So he framed all these things as, quote unquote, pseudo religions or new religions because people are taken by their message of salvation and justice. And he sort of presented these as like a a threat to Christianity in in, in the United States, which I think a lot of uh, people, myself included, had some questions about. Right. And so- Broader context, he does. He he says, you know, a lot of these movements sprung up in the wake of the killing of George Floyd in 2020, and he says that this there is a righteous uh, movement for justice that needs to happen um, and addressing racism and you know police brutality. Um, but then he goes on to say, without saying Black Lives Matter, that the uprisings in response to that killing um, have you know, gone too far and pose a threat to Christianity. He's he's right about one thing, and that they do sort of function as religion for a lot of young people. And I, he sees that as, I think, a bad thing. Yeah, no, in that they provide meaning. Um, community. A vision, community, a vision of what a just world looks like. Right, and it's not, like... And it's not completely incompatible with... it. It's They are things that Christianity could provide if it was you know, up to the task. Right. And I think a lot of young people uh, have seen the church fail to provide those things, community, a sense of purpose, justice, et cetera, um, and so are seeking them elsewhere. Uh, but this is also notable because just a couple weeks ago, Pope Francis, in a speech we talked about, compared the, you know, the 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 uprising after George Floyd's killing to the Good Samaritan, right? They saw someone beat and suffered and killed, and they did not look away. They did not cross to the other side of the road. Yeah. And I think there's, well, I saw a lot of hurt expressed in response to this because, you know, there are, there are, one, there is good to be found in these movements, even the most secular of them. And two, there are tons of people of faith who take part in them and to hear their their work for justice talked about this way from the, you know, top bishop in the Catholic Church. Um, I, I think they've understandably feel taken aback by that. Yeah. And as you said, even if you would never, even if you believe that these are sort of a a, a, a pseudo religion or a new type of religion, you would never talk this way about other religions, right. right? Like you would, you would find areas of common ground, find the good in them. And so I think this is, that's what's really, really frustrating for a lot of um, young people who hear this, who are attracted to these, a lot of Catholics of color, other people of color that aren't Catholic, um, just feel frustrated by what seems to be sort of a not fully taking serious uh, people's attraction to these movements for justice. But he was not the only bishop in in the news this past week. Um, and so in the same in the same way that Archbishop Gomez is talking about, uh, you know, social justice movements this way, you had another bishop in um I guess, move next to Bishop Stowe, um, who's the Bishop of Lexington, who's been on this podcast. He had an interview in Commonweal this this past week where he talked about the church's need to to be political and to be involved in these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, he said they sh- should be political, but not partisan. But not being partisan doesn't mean 
never criticizing political figures. And he he notably, when uh, Trump was president, spoke out very forcefully against uh, Trump's uh, <laughs> sins <laughs> against yes. individuals and our country. And he, he got heat for that. But, you know, he, as you said, he doesn't see the church as an apolitical entity that is not going to weigh in on these things, which, you know, we're seeing with the bishops now and Joe Biden. Right. And he, you know, he mentions in this interview, he is not uh, in favor of this, you know, moving too quickly on this document about the Eucharist and especially not including language around denying pro-choice politicians communion. Um, And so that's happening. And at the same time on America's podcast network, yes. the Archbishop of San Francisco, Salvatore Cordioni, who was on Gloria Purvis's podcast, you know, explained sort of his thinking behind why he's been so adamant in praying for uh, Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden and sort of being up front and center about the issue of abortion and communion in public life. Right. That was it was an interesting interview. One thing that I thought was notable notable is that he said he had a very civil and cordial relationship with Nancy Pelosi, which I don't think people would guess from the outside. He complimented her uh, for always being respectful when she talks about the church and about him. But he also made the point that he he sees his those um, prayer campaign that he launched for the conversion of Nancy Pelosi's soul or heart on the issue of abortion as as his understanding of what it means to be pastoral. So that's happening. And then, you know, I've forgotten that we even had this whole controversy around the Latin mass over the summer. But that is still that is still a a debate that is raging within the church, especially the American church. And so just this week, we also had an article from uh, Cardinal Blaise Supich of Chicago in America, you know, sort of arguing why Pope Francis needed to implement these reforms of the Latin mass, which was to really secure the legacy of Vatican II. Um, That's a lot of stuff, right? So I think we just (laughs) mentioned four instances. Um, But this brings me to a larger point that I wanted to talk to you about, which is how do we think about the bishops in general? Because I, I think of people who pay attention to to the bishops, it's there's a temptation to always sort of refer to them as a single group or a single entity um, that all think and think the same way or act the same way or and do all the same things. And I part of that's because they, they there is a US bishops conference which which does act as a single entity, but it's easy to forget that there are a range of perspectives and people that make that up. Right. And it's interesting because a bishop's conference is a pretty modern innovation. I think in the U.S. it started during World War One as like a way to coordinate the Catholic Church's war efforts mm-hmm. or not war, like efforts to <laughs> assist people. Um, and so it doesn't really have any legal or, you know, quote unquote, legal standing in the church. Um, so bishops really are, you know, the teacher in their own specific diocese. That's why when we talk about the idea of denying communion to Joe Biden, it's kind of, you know, nonsensical because the only bishop who gets to decide that is the bishop of his diocese. That actually gets back to something Archbishop Cordelioni said in his interview with Gloria Purvis when she asked him about if there's increasing division among bishops. And he made the point that uh, bishops have consciences too, and that needs to be respected. He said, quote, so no matter what the bishop decides in a situation, we have to respect that. And I think he's not just saying, you know, people in the diocese have to respect it, but brother bishops have to respect it. So there's going to be differences of opinions. And, you know, it's 
it's tough because I think in some ways before I was before I paid attention to these things, I didn't know the name of any bishop except the Bishop of Rome and probably the Bishop of my home diocese. Um, shout out to Bishop Campbell. That was Bishop of Columbus when I was growing up. Um, and now I think there's a temptation to view these people like they're political figures. And I'm not saying I don't think I would suggest here to not pay attention to uh, bishops from other dioceses because, you know, the fact of the matter is they are they have a teaching office and their teaching office in the the world of modern media extends far beyond the geographical boundaries of their diocese. I, I, I don't know the solution, except maybe, you know, the solution is to to get more local, right? Yeah. This is often a when you're frustrated with national politics, just become more involved, invested in local politics. Yeah, and really especially matters. in this year of the Senate, or, you know, we have until August to have these listening sessions in the United States um, for the Synod on Synods. And so, you know, the only way you're going to make your, vo- or, you know, the best way to make your voice heard in that process is through your own diocesan process, which hopefully your bishop is, you know, initiating and is willing to listen. This That's a perfect segue, actually, out of Signs of the Times, um, because we've got this great conversation coming up with Frank Congiano, who is uh, going to explain more about what that process is, because the church really is asking to hear from all people, whether whether you're Catholic or not, religious or not, um, ha- you know, you're you're in mass every every day or on Christmas and Easter. The church, Pope Francis, the bishops want to hear from all of us. Yeah, that was a lot. Each one of those probably could have been their own story. So we're going to link to all those stories uh, in the show notes. And now stick around for our conversation with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Joining us from the Diocese of Bridgeport, Connecticut, is Bishop Frank Caggiano. Welcome to Jesuitical, Bishop Frank. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you. It's a pleasure. I'm look, I was, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. Awesome. Well, so you are uh, the third bishop we've had on the show, and we'd like to start with this question because we feel like we want to show some uh, diversity in the in, in the lives of your ministries. But what's a, what's a typical day like for you as the Bishop of Bridgeport? <laughs> One step above chaos, my friend. <laughs> it's like, um, it, it, it much depends. But like, for example, today I have some office work to do and then I'm visiting one of our churches for patrimony and then I have confirmation this evening. And um, the weekends could be as different as, you know, recognition ceremonies, confirmations, parish masses. What I like about my ministry is its variety. No two days are alike. Yeah. One thing you share with us is you have a podcast. Let me be frank. How yes. do you how do you find time for that, and what do you like about that form of communicating with your with your diocese? Well, my podcast is cheaper than therapy, so I think it's great. <laughs> that's that's why we did it too. Yeah, no, can relate. <laughs> but I must tell you, it's um, it, it's every week. Steve Lee and 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 I have the opportunity to meet for about an hour. And I have found it to be just an extraordinary tool for evangelization. A lot of people in the diocese have now, when they see me, they say, you know, Bishop, we're now actually really getting to know you personally, mm-hmm. which in the normal course of an Episcopal visit, you don't have that opportunity. Yeah, right? that was certainly not the relationship I had with with my bishop growing up. Yeah, um, and I didn't either. I mean, I grew up in Brooklyn with Bishop McGovern. And Bishop McGovern was a wonderful man, but I think I saw him three times in my whole life yeah. Yeah. until I was ordained, right? So, 
And, and it gives me an opportunity to just speak from the heart and not necessarily always in a scripted way or in a liturgical venue where you, you're preaching on the scripture. So I very much enjoy it, I must confess. Well, in that vein, we're going we're gonna to keep it going with this podcast. Um, we wanted to talk to you today about uh, synodality. Um, because you've you, you've certainly got some experience on it. We we both listened to your your podcast on this, um, and we wanted to I, I guess first establish you know what what is a synod because it's a word that's I, I, a little clunky on uh, American and young people's ears. I think yeah, like a synod basically is an intentional gathering for a very specific ministerial or pastoral purpose, right? So. We've had a number of them in the church since the Second Vatican Council, and they always revolve around a certain topic. And what the Pope is asking is consultation. What do you see on the ground regarding whatever X may be? And how do we deal with it in the concrete? So it is not unlike what you may even have in like business, right? But we do it for a different purpose, for a different end. But you, you got to get the intelligence from the ground. You have to get what's going experience to say, okay, how do we address this experience? So it's, um, it, it's, it can be legislative, right? You know, we can actually have things that the church or the Pope decide are going to be things we all need to do. Most of the time, it's consultative. So under Pope Francis, we have had, as you mentioned, a, couple, a few synods around certain themes or reason, regions. So family, young people, the Amazon. But this one is a synod on synodality, which kind of sounds like a meeting on meetings, which <laughs> anyone has been, which yeah. I imagine is hard to get people too excited about. Um, so, what would you, what would you, how would you describe the purpose of this meeting? Um, yeah, I, actually, I think this synod is extremely important because what it really is is debuting a new methodology of consultation. It, it's really a reflection on who we are. It's asking the church to take a step back and say, we all by baptism have a role in the church. The Spirit's moving in all our hearts, and we all have a, a place and, and a role to play in discerning how the church addresses pastoral issues. So this is the dry run for a new methodology that involves everybody, not just bishops. Everybody in the church has an opportunity to be part of it. It's revolutionary in that sense. For the this is the I've read. This is the largest attempt at human consultation in the history of the world. Makes sense. That sounds I mean, daunting. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it makes sense. It you is. can't imagine like a, you know, in terms of a business or a government or, you know, with Catholics being all over the world and, you know, trying to do this through a structured way, it, um, it, it, it's, it's incredible. Um, what are, I guess that seems very challenging also, though. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. But Zach, you know what, if I may add this. It's like everything else. If you're consulting a billion people, you're not, you could have a billion different insights for argument's sake. So you're going to distill it into something that could be generic that everybody then goes back, reads, and tries to apply. But like seeing the Diocese of Bridgeport, I said to the delegates, I commissioned almost 200 of them, and I said to them, what you're going to hear, the stories of people's lives, the things that are going to be shared with you, we're going to send it on to Washington and Rome. But that's our food to think about in our diocese because it's, it's closest to the roots. What are we going to learn about our own church life what do we have to do in our own way of moving forward? So it, 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 I guess we could kind of see it as seeding the, the, the local communities as well as having a much more global conversation. We're doing both at the same time. So you said this is a test run for a, a new way of, you know, consulting as a church. Um, 
So I'm wondering, how would you describe the old way, what was missing from it, or maybe why wasn't it up for the, up for the times and the challenges we face right now? Well, that's actually, it's a great question. Um, I had the privilege of being a delegate to the Synod on Youth, right, and young, and young adults. And one of the, the, the most electric moments in the Synod was when the young people themselves spoke. And their profiles of ministry and courage and perseverance, which is really they're beautiful. Now, in the structure we have, I, as the bishop, I'm supposed to bring all those insights and observations to the larger gathering. But I'm always kind of like filtering it because I'm not a young adult. But when they speak for themselves or anyone speaks for him or herself, it's much more powerful. So that's what the, where the difference is, that the bishops were still going to be the deliberators with the pope as to how to respond, but now everyone has a voice to tell his or her own personal story. And I think it's going to be, it's going to be wider, deeper, broader, more personal than what we have now. Was that like a, a moment of conversion for you in some ways and just seeing, seeing that happen in action at the Synod on Young People? Or? Absolutely. 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 See, I think what animates Pope Francis in large part is this beautiful basic theological idea of communion, that we're all linked together. All humanity is linked together because we're all in God's image and likeness. And among believers, we're, we're linked together by grace and the Holy Spirit and baptism. And so, you know, we could disagree, we could even fight, but we're all in this together to be partners in mission. And we all have a role to play in preaching the gospel and moving the mission of the church forward. So, I think it is is a concept that for young adults in particular resonates so deeply because, right, no one wants you to speak for them. Mm -hmm. And I think it's going to be, well, and that's the, the challenge is I think a lot of young people, you know, grow up with this idea of the church that it, it, it is very top down. Like, you know, here's the, here's the law, like like obey or obey or get out. Um, and if I have questions, you know, you can maybe, you can, you can maybe ask them, but there's not really anything you can do about it. There's not really a, a start of a conversation. It's very much a one way mm -hmm. conversation. Mm -hmm. Right. And that, that will turn many young people off. Right. Uh, you know, the interesting thing, St. Mary's press had a, a study and it's called going, going gone. And it spoke about why people leave the church and the two startling takeaways from that is believe it or not, by 13, most young people, if they're leaving the church, already have made the decision to leave. Mm -hmm. And the second is, the principal reason why they leave is to your point, Zach, they don't have their questions answered. They don't believe they have a safe space where they could ask their questions without a judgment and have a conversation as to how do you answer it and allow them to appropriate that in a way. So they walk away. And and the direction or the instructions for this synod uh, specifically say that, you know, we shouldn't only be talking to the most loyal parishioners, that the, the church wants to hear from everyone. So young people, people on the margins of the church, maybe people have left the church. But that seems like it's a hard thing to do. How do you how do you reach those people? Um, but why do you think it's worth doing? And and. Yeah, what what does the church have to gain from hearing those voices? Well, because some people probably are like, well, what do the you know? I'm here every week. What do these people have to say, or what do they have to know about how the Catholic oh, Church should be course. run? Yeah. Of course, of course, of course. Yeah, I've heard that already. And it's not so much that everyone's weighing in on how how we're going to change how we operate per se, but it is 
it's interesting when when I ask friends, you know, when I'm out for dinner, whatever it may be, um, how are things going, and all the rest, and they share what they what they're experiencing. I have a different perspective because I see them from the outside in. And in a sense, even in my own life, people have said to me, you know, Bishop, you look terrible. You look tired. You look this. You look distracted. And I'm not even aware that I am tired or distracted. So people outside the church perceive us in a certain way because we may not even be aware of how we're sending out the vibes that give them that perception, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. So there's a tremendous value in that. And is that the primary? I, I, I guess what are these what are these conversations about? Are we just are, are we trying to just get a sense of people's perceptions of the church or their their interactions with it, um, or what their opinion is on on like the certain teachings or ways of operating? My sense is, if I read those documents correctly, the Pope wants um, to hear people's personal stories of faith. So where has the church? been an aid in your spiritual journey? Where has it been a challenge or obstacle? If you are not active in life, in your life of faith in the church, well, where do you draw your spiritual sustenance? Where do you find your consolation? Where do you find your joy in life? So it's very, it's, it's more of an existential sort of question. If, if young people are leaving the church, which they are, where are they going? And what are they doing with their their basic desire to 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 have a relationship with something far greater and more meaningful? Of course, for us, it's God Himself. So it, it's 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 somewhat what we may be doing right or what we could do better. But it's also well, where where are you going then to find these basic needs, which would be fascinating to learn. Mm-hmm. Firsthand. So, Bishop Frank, you are clearly a fan of synodality mm-hmm. and are on board with this synod, but I don't think everyone is as enthusiastic. And for some, um, there might be some fear about uh, what this could lead to. You know, Pope Francis is not afraid of, you know, making messes, as he's said before. And this, you know, yes. this has the potential to be messy when you have this many voices. Um, so what do you think is behind that fear? And what would you say to people who um, are maybe not quite as on board as you? Well, I think it really comes down to a fear that a synod will become a Congress and we will be voting or somehow influencing the things we believe in. And that is not what a synod is meant to be. I told our delegates, this is not a Congress. We're not voting to amend things or to, to, to kick out this, that, or the other. But rather, it, it is a way to, in the appropriation of one's experience, to be able to discern in the things we believe an application, a deeper significance, that we did not necessarily recognize now. You know, it's, if I may give you this image, when I look at the pictures of myself as a little kid, uh, a fat little chubby kid from Brooklyn, <laughs> right? And now I'm a, a fat chubby adult, or actually early elder in Bridgeport. It's the same me, but there has been much development along the way, but it's still me. And that's kind of like, where I think people should get reassurance is this is not like a free-for-all to change what we believe, but we can understand, we can deepen our understanding of what we believe and apply it in more effective ways. And I think that one of the challenges for 
Catholics is this um, this gap between understanding like what are what are, what are the applications and what what is the content of the faith because right it, like it's also unfair to say that I think nothing is going to change because of this right like we wouldn't be I don't think having this this meeting this synod on synodality if if we didn't expect something to change are there some examples off the top of your head of some things that you know in the way that we apply how we live out our faith that could change for example coming out of this well I think I think much will change. And a lot of it is attitudinal, not so much doctrinal. I mean, we really do have, among many good people, this sense, mass, and I'm done. But as a Christian, mass is the, the fuel for the rest of the week so that you're, you're never really done. And baptism calls us to live our lives everywhere, whether it's in the marketplace, in the political arena, whether it is in social and community life, whether it is in your parish, among friends, among your, with your spouse, your children. And I could go on and on and on. And, and so when you have a parish that's not welcoming, there's something's wrong attitudinally. So I'm hoping that these people who are involved, as we get involved and you listen to people's stories and you listen to their sufferings and you listen to their heartbreaks and you, and you, you, you do it in a way that you yourself are opening yourself up to what they're saying, then I'm hoping it will start converting hearts to say, we're in this together. I mean, I can't go to mass and not be concerned about who's sitting next to me anymore. Right? It, it, I think if we start changing the attitude we have that we are really sisters and brothers, what that really means, then this could have a profound change in the life of the church. Yeah, I think when you say, you know, there are some Catholics who think it's mass and, you know, then you're done. Um, I think for young people, it's often flipped where, you know, we assume because they aren't showing up to mass on Sunday that the faith is not working in their lives. And we just, I don't know, knowing other young people who are, you know, very passionate about social justice issues and that, you know, that guides their career and their volunteer work and, and you know, maybe even like protests. The church, I think, has failed to see that as as part of what we can consider being part of the church. It seems like those are the types of stories that would be valuable to hear in this process. And I, I know in your ministry as as bishop, you've made reaching out to young young people a priority. So how do, how are you going to try to do that in the synod process? Well, it's 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 interesting. In the synod, we'll listen to their stories. Actually, we have some we have some initiatives that we're going to launch in a couple of weeks. Um, that are going to try to create bridges to young adults, particularly to young adults, in, in meaningful ways that are not liturgical. In other words, just like you said, Ashley, to get from n no no active participation in the church to Sunday Mass is a big leap, but we can get there. And the social teachings of the church, which are the hidden gem, we have not really emphasized much, but they are the portion of what we believe that truly excite young people and particularly young adults. And I'm speaking as the chair of CRS, Catholic Relief Services. I mean, the work CRS does around the world, every Catholic should be proud of. And young people in particular, if you want to end malaria worldwide, you want to give clean drinking water to these families in Ethiopia that are in the midst of a drought. I mean, that's faith in action. That's part of what it means to be Catholic, right? So if we can get people involved in that, then we can, with the relationships we build, we can move them further along until we're all together, right? Right. Like how many young people even know that that's 
a route if that's something they were passionate about that's a route they could take exactly. right it, instead of exactly. going to some another ngo which is also doing good work but to be able to have the option to stay within the church and encounter that firsthand Absolutely. is super important it's very well said and i think we have not done a good enough job of articulating the different doors that anyone could go through towards further involvement in the life of the church. But now is the time to say, okay, I don't care what door you come in, but I'm inviting you into one of these doors and let's walk together and see where we land. So part of this process obviously is reimagining the way that uh, bishops themselves exercise authority or um, listening and teaching and the relationship between those two things. And from one vantage point, it is a, a giving up of the old way of doing things and the old way of like having power in the church. Is that is how do, what's your thought on that? Is that like a change is scary for anyone, but I, so I imagine it's got to be, there's got to be some hesitations or, or, or reservations about it. Yeah. I, I, that's really, that's a, a really a profound question. I must confess. And, and I, I will give you a first glance answer and I need to reflect on that further too. But I would say this, I think here in the diocese, when we when I eliminated quote unquote the um, the indult to be able to stay home on Sunday and not attend mass in person, when the obligation was quote unquote reinstated, it didn't really affect attendance. And, and and part of it is because people are not motivated simply because this may be in obedience to a, a law that they're coming. They're coming because their heart is moved to come which is the ideal, in fact, right? Mm -hmm. So for myself as a bishop, when I teach, I am painfully aware that I have to be effective in my preaching, in my teaching, because just simply saying it is not enough. We have to be inspirational and we have to give cogent reasons and we have to engage in dialogue to win people's hearts and minds. No different than St. Paul did in the Acts of the Apostles. It's not. It's no different than in that. St. Paul didn't have a code of canon law to like fall back on to get people in, <laughs> into shape. Yeah, <laughs> right. Or no. Or no catechism. Or not even the written scriptures. Right. Mm -hmm. But he. But but he knew what he had to do. So in some sense, if I could challenge myself, and of course don't hold me accountable to this. <laughs> I could challenge myself. My witness and my example is more powerful than my words. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And and if I say one thing and I'm living something else, then young people in particular, young adults, are gonna say, Well, well I mean, come on, if you're not walking the talk, stop already. We gotta we don't need to hear this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So with with the kind of open and open listening uh this synod is inviting and that you know that you seem very open to uh partaking in you know, you're gonna have different voices and there will probably at some point be disagreement. Um at whatever level. And, you know, uh, U.S. Catholics have gotten kind of used to division in the church, unfortunately. Or maybe, I don't know, at least those of us in the media see a lot of um, uh, polarization uh, within the church. And I'm wondering if you have any advice about how to, how to have hard, honest conversations without deepening those divisions. Yeah, it's all, I think, the art of listening. You know, 
it, listening in the in the contemporary world is oftentimes confused with just waiting, biding your time till you could say something. <laughs> we would I, never do that on this podcast. No. <laughs> yeah. I'm never that friend at the dinner that's just you know waiting for my turn to go next. No, right, right. And but if listening is from the heart, then it's always going to be challenging because you're going to be reacting to what a person says, making the choice not to react externally and it reveals your own heart to yourself so why am i reacting this way why am i defensive why why do i find this somewhat discomforting it is a window into your own heart and in the end what you said is absolutely correct we've we've become tribal in the catholic church like politics you belong to a tribe and you go on social media and you beat the warfare and you're going to conquer it's no longer listen i'm going to conquer and and vanquish whoever doesn't happen to agree with me and that's all about, you know, the basic premise that it's all about me and I'm the standard of truth. And I, this is the, I'm going to fix the church. I'm going to save the church. Who are you? Who's going to, Christ saved the church. Well, you're gonna, so when you, what church are you saving? <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. in the end. But so it's, it's melting the heart. My prayer for the synod is that it will melt my heart more and all those who participate in it so that they can truly become empathetic to those around them. And that's how you can foster communion in a new way. What are some of the challenges for for our American church in particular um, here in the United States? Because it seems like there is... Uh... <laughs> around the world, varying levels of experience and, and competency is maybe coming off harsher than I, I mean it to sound with, with, you know, organizing and running some of these synods. So, you know, in, in Bridgeport, for example, you guys have had, you have some experience um, in, in ex, you know, getting, experimenting with synodality, but not every diocese in this country is. And um, we, in America, some of our colleagues, you know, you know, called every diocese to see what they were we're doing what they were up to for the synod, and you know, less than half have really gotten to the point where you know we're recording this early October, you know, but but after or late October after the diocesan phase started, and less than half have gotten a director appointed. So what are you know? We know that like there's still the pandemic happening, and there, there are still some challenges to go with that. But is it a lack of enthusiasm or something else going on here in the United States? I would say this. I think from my perspective. You invest in the things that you believe are going to yield the greatest fruit. And perhaps Bishop has decided that it won't. But my experience is that the opposite is true. And if I may just share this too, in 2014, when we had our diocesan synod, I went to, I forget how many in-person sessions. There were 3,600 interventions. And some of it was very painful because people were just so angry at so much. And, you know, and so this listening that I described before, I had to learn the hard way. But it has really kind of changed my whole perspective as a Dawson bishop on how you govern and how you prioritize and what you do. And, and I think this, the synodality is going to allow seeds to be planted in the hearts of people that could have a truly long-lasting change on how we operate, how we treat each other, and to start healing some of these divisions that exist in the church, which pain me to see. 
Can you say more about that experience of listening to people's anger in the church? Because it does strike me as very profound because I think there are lots of people who who are angry at the church, but still, I mean, like to intervene and, you know, express that anger is is itself like in some ways an act of love, right? Like you, you've not given up on this thing because you could totally, you, someone could choose to just leave and ignore the church. And it, it seems to me like there aren't many avenues where people can, you know, like in a family um, that's, you know, healthy, which of there may be like three total in the world, but, you know, <laughs> to be able to like express anger and listen, what was, that that had to be very moving and difficult. Oh, it was, certainly was. It was certainly moving because you could see the genuine anguish in a lot of people. It's, you know... It, if you're betrayed by a friend or a spouse, there are very little words to describe the pain that you experience. And, you know, the, their, the church that they loved, you know, we, used to, we call Mother Church. I mean, to be betrayed by the spiritual parent, at least in their eyes, is like being having a dagger plunged into your heart. And to, to be able to hear it was what they needed. Many times, people afterwards, I saw in the years that followed, they thanked me simply for being able to say it, for there was nowhere else to say it. And that itself is healing, right? So I think in the end, um, for me personally, uh, it resolved, it gave me greater resolve to understand that part of my ministry is administrative. But that administration is an act of love, too, because it should be designed in part to make sure that what we endured will never happen again, never happen again, that people will never experience that level of betrayal again. Yeah. Bishop Frank, I'm wondering if you could give some words of wisdom or advice to someone who's listening to this conversation and thinking to themselves, all right, it's great that the church is doing this, but like I'm not the type of person they want to hear from or it's it's not worth my time. Um I'm just going to tune this one out or sit this one out. Why why do you think they should make the effort to to get involved at their parish or diocesan level? Well, I think in part it's the simple message is that we we care and we want you to be part and um as any good family, we we're not going to leave you behind. We're going to ask. And, and if you're not ready, perhaps later on we'll ask again because we love you. It's as simple as that. And if, we, and if one can't honestly say that, then that's why the synod has to melt hearts. Right? It, it, for all of us, if we have friends, relatives, neighbors um, who are not involved in the life of the church, then it's like having Sunday meal and not having your whole family there, which in the modern world has become commonplace. When I was a kid, that was unthinkable. It was unheard of. And, and when I went to Sunday meal, I always didn't get along with my sister. Sometimes I wanted to wring her neck, and she <laughs> certainly wanted to wring my neck. <laughs> mm -hmm. But we were still at the meal because I couldn't imagine life without that. So in a sense, I, my, what, would, what would I say to them? I said, please don't give up on us so much that we can't still have a cup of coffee together and talk. Mm -hmm. Because at least for us, we need you and we want you, right? Once part of the family, you are always part of the family. 
cup of coffee or a Manhattan. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> Bishop Frank, we have two quick, quick more questions for you before we let you go. Um, first, being that you you are from Brooklyn and Ashley and I currently reside there, um, wanted to get some of your, uh, what was like your favorite thing to do growing up there and why was it Coney Island? <laughs> Uh, okay, so well, Coney Island. I would go to the beach with my my uncle and my father. But but Coney Island, I I see. I love to people watch. Oh yes. yeah, that's we we're, we're there most weekends over the summer. Yes, it's, doing right. just that. So so, is there any better place to no. people watch than there? No, Literally, all God no. all God's children are at Coney Island. <laughs> oh, without a doubt, uh, without a doubt. But growing up, it was just. I mean, growing up, we played stickball. And, stoop ball and all that. I mean, it was just like one huge party. It really was. I love it. <laughs> awesome. And so we have one final question for you, which is, mm-hmm. uh, we ask this of all our guests and it's, if you could canonize anyone, uh, living or dead, Catholic or not, uh, fictional or real, who would it be and why? Oh my gosh. All right. So this is going to reveal my deep psychology here. So. Great. <laughs> I have spoken about her so much, there would be no doubt in my mind that the person I would canonize was my mother. Mm. Not simply because of her heroic patience (laughs) with me growing up, but if there was a person in my life who mirrored as much as is humanly possible the unconditional love of God, it was my mother. And I think if there's one requirement to get to heaven, it's to love as God loves. And at least in my life, she did that for me. What was your mother's name? Or what did... uh, oh, her name was Jennarina. <laughs> Jennarina. We used to call her Gina. Well, I didn't call it. I call her Ma. But I mean, <laughs> <laughs> they, call, they called her Gina. She was born on the 19th of September, San Gennaro. Oh, yeah. And I, so she's Jennarina. I, I, mm-hmm. I don't think you would offer this yourself, but I know that you... Um, when you were an auxiliary in Brooklyn, you moved in with her to take care of her. Um, yes, when she was dying. And yes, I, I imagine that I, I find that very moving as as a son myself, and as who's seen my you know, and who has seen my parents do that for for their parents. And so um, I appreciate that you, even in your ministry, which I, I know is super busy as a bishop, were able to do that for her. So, um, th- Bishop Frank, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. Uh, we really appreciate it. And if people want to listen to more of you, the, the podcast is not just for the people in Bridgeport. Wherever you're listening to this, if you search, let me be frank, you'll find mm-hmm. it. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, Bishop Frank, thank you. Pr- please pray for us. We'll pray for you for this for this upcoming synod. Thank you, Zach. Thank you, Ashley. Yeah, it's a pleasure being with you. And I promise to keep you in my prayers. Keep up the great work because you're evangelizing and you're inviting people, right, to take a second look and to get more involved, which is tremendous. You're at the front lines. We're trying, we're trying. So I appreciate it. All right, thank you, Bishop. Someone said your name had a ton around. Suddenly you're there standing in the crowd. Everything comes back in the blink of an eye. It's like you're mine, you're still mine. They skip the small talk, cause you know me better than I. Now it's time for some housekeeping. What do we have this week, Zach? Wanted to thank and shout out some new patrons. Uh, 
that are supporting us on Patreon. Uh, so huge thank you to John Osman, Mary Dernberger, Sean McElwee, Matthew Cody, and Santiago Torres. Uh, thank you all so much. Um, they they got access along with all of our other patrons to the the full bonus episode. You might have seen a teaser in your feed this week where we're talking about Midnight Mass. Um, and they're going to get access to some new bonus episodes that are coming up pretty soon. We're recording one right after this. Yes. So for just $5 a month, you can get access to all that and more if you just go to patreon.com slash americamedia. And now it's time for As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives. And I'm up this week. So I had an experience this weekend that I think might be relatable, so I just wanted to bring it up and hash it out with you. My parents were in town over the weekend. They wanted to do an early mass on Sunday, so we decided to go to kind of the the one in my neighborhood as opposed to uh, my normal parish. And I've noticed this tendency within myself whenever I'm bringing someone to uh, a new a new parish or a different mass, whether it's someone I know or someone who I'm you know who's maybe been away from the church. I get extremely self conscious about how the mass goes, how the music is, how the homily is, and just feel like everything is a reflection of me and my, you know, my choice in Catholicism or my taste in mass. And it ended up being a fine mass this weekend, but I still, I, you know, I find myself like looking at my parents, like, do they like music? Are they engaged? Are they enjoying this homily? And I'm like struggling with whether this is a good thing, like that I care that they're you know, like if you invite someone to a new restaurant, you want them to enjoy it. But I also find it very distracting and like making me the center of this experience that obviously I'm not. Yeah, I feel like I have a an experience that's very similar to this, but it's typically if I'm ever at mass with someone who either in not a great relationship with Catholicism or or doesn't have one with Catholicism yet, or is um, you know maybe coming back for a while for the first time in a while, or, or I, I will try to read into someone else's like way they're experiencing church for the first time in a long time um, or first time ever, and like oh, I, I took him to this mass because the the music is fire, the preaching is prophetic, and it's all great. And then I'll get there and it's like, oh, we have a, a substitute canther this week. And oh, <laughs> the, that homily was actually pretty bad. And I think it's all my fault. And now they'll never give God a chance yeah. again, which is, of course, ridiculous. Yeah. But also I think it, the other tendency within myself is I'm definitely trying to like control a situation and control the way that like grace intrudes on someone's life. It's something Pope Francis has said. Um, he's talking about priests um, being roadblocks to God's grace and confession, but he says, sometimes we act as arbiters of God's grace rather than its facilitators. And, and that applies to us too, right? Outside of confession when we're trying to bring people in and welcome. Yeah, so another place where giving up a little bit of control is probably helpful in our spiritual lives. Uh, so yeah, no, listeners, it, let us know if you've had this experience and, you know, how you've grappled with the tension of wanting to be welcoming and inviting and also realizing that ultimately God is in control, as or Zach said. Or maybe you're a normal person yeah. and this is not something you've ever dealt with. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just a problem that Ashley and I have. Yeah. All right, get us out of here. All right. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Kira Hanlon. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. 
please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is a production of American Media and is recorded in the William J. Loeschert Studio in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.